Well, do you know the expression being taken behind the woodshed? If so, you probably got gray hair or no hair or very high salon bills. Surely, you heard maybe your grandparents use this expression, but I think, frankly, it's long faded from popular use. But it's yet for this preacher, and I hope for you all, uh, a useful expression as we consider this morning Psalm 50. We're continuing to work through the Psalms, Richard's choice for us this summer. Because that's his choice, we delight in it, but we delight in it mainly because it's God's Word brought to us in different messages and different themes. We, we wander from psalms of lament into psalms of thanksgiving, and in this case, uh, a psalm that is quite sobering, a psalm that speaks heavily of God's law, but so too God's grace. This phrase, covenantal woodshed, actually captures, and maybe in a memorable sense, that's my intention, the actual functioning of the psalm's substance. That is, as we'll find out, but here's a preview, an admittedly long preview. God as judge takes His covenant people behind the covenantal woodshed and into His law, so to speak, to receive reprimand, rebuke, and warning regarding their sacrificial practices and their sin-fueled lives. It's an appeal itself intended to redirect them in their covenantal lives. And it's appeal who implies a coming final judgment concerning which the salvation of God is required, and it ultimately expresses an appeal to the grace of salvation, a grace that should and must propel our thankfulness. A perfect judge's perfect rebuke regarding his perfect law and a warning which is perfectly timed for an imperfect covenant people's blessing as it ultimately tells also of grace. Will and did they listen to this psalm as it was sung? Will we listen as this psalm is preached? Did they understand it? Will we understand it? It's my prayer the Holy Spirit would make it so for us this morning. Now let's first concede this and remind ourselves of this regarding God's law and the times that we live in. Our surrounding culture makes no room for God's law or for a God who judges. And so too, much of the contemporary American church makes room only for God's grace. The law in many places, even in some churches, 
has vanished as a relevant part of God's Word. Concerned, I suppose, to elevate the gospel of grace, the law goes unmentioned or unheeded at a practical level. Who needs the law? We've got grace. I suppose if God's law had an Instagram account today, it would have very few followers, and even then it would rarely get any likes for its various posts. Should this be so? Not if Psalm 50 is our guide. For again, we shall hear the Lord Himself as judge as He summons His covenantal people, testifies against them, warns them, alludes to a final judgment, and ultimately teaches them how to glorify Him, telling them of the salvation of God. If it does all that, it's worth engaging with. It's a telling, actually a singing, of both law and grace, referencing both the law and the gospel. Being taken to the covenantal or behind the covenantal woodshed will be either for us a great mercy if we listen, learn, and heed, or simply a present rebuke and a foreshadowing of a final judgment without deliverance for those who don't listen, learn, and heed. Actually, it's a harder word than we normally get from a pulpit, isn't it? It's God's Word. Because it's here in this psalm, we're going to dig into it. And so I see, uh, it seems to me that Psalm 50's thrust is then rather old-fashioned for our contemporary ears, even our contemporary Christian ears. So again I ask, who speaks about God as a judge anymore? Who speaks about God rebuking His covenant people anymore? Who anymore threatens those who forget God with a destruction from which it's said there will be none to deliver? The answer to each of these questions is that the God of salvation so speaks. The perfect God of salvation who shines forth from Zion, who speaks, a speaking of urgency that references both the Old Testament ceremonial law and the moral law, a speaking of intense practical import. So let's hear God's word, Psalm 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. 
I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a, thanks, a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. And so, yes, thanks be to God for it is intended for our blessing, for our edification, for our conviction, and for our redemption. Now, this is a spectacularly rich and understandable psalm, albeit with, act, with very deep roots in Old Testament sacrificial law and practice that will add some complexity for us. But a brief orientation is merited before we push directly into the text. So you had an introduction, and now I suppose we're going to have an orientation. I'll I'll preach this in a minute. I didn't read it, but you may have noticed that there was a superscription above this psalm. It indicated something of significance. This is not a Davidic psalm. Notice that the superscription assigns it to Asaph. Who is Asaph and why is this psalm located of his here in book two of the psalms when the other psalms of Asaph are bunched together much later in the psalms? Jewish scholar Hubert Spiro notes this. He says, in the book of Psalms there are a total of 12 in which the name Asaph appears in the superscription. 11 of these appear as a group and constitute Psalms 73 through 83. The 12th occurs earlier and appears as Psalm 50. The question arises, was Psalm 50 misplaced or was it located there deliberately and if so, why? Now, to be clear, I don't want to be mis misunderstood here. As we will see, Psalm 50 has an integrity and worth all its own, a distinctive psalm that needs no other psalms to justify it. But as to its location, immediately preceding David's own magnificent and very famous Psalm 51, some do take note. Theologian Lance Kramer takes that note, and he makes this particular observation. The strongest connections of Psalm 50 with the Psalms that surround it comes between Psalm 50 and 51. David confesses his lawlessness and sin in Psalm 51, 4 through 5, yet still professes faith in Yahweh as the one who will deliver him 
and bring about his salvation in Psalm 51. And references there are to similar expressions as we'll come to in Psalm 50. David criticizes the insufficiency of the sacrificial system to please Yahweh and focuses rather on the inward condition of a person in Psalm 51, 17 through 19. It is in Psalm 50, 18 through 21, our psalm, that the sinner is rebuked for participation with thieves and adulterers and for allowing his, his mouth to increase evil against his fellow Israelites, all of which are sins that David committed against Uriah. He referenced that in 2 Samuel 11. David sleeps with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, commits evil against him, thereby murdering him, and then steals Bathsheba for himself. The final editor or editors of the book two of the Psalms seem to have placed Psalms 50 and 51 next to each other to highlight these significant things. Now, while Kramer may be correct in that tying together, that's not what you're going to hear preached this morning. In my view, Psalm 50, standing alone, expresses its own powerful and arresting themes, themes to which we should listen and concerning which we should heed. As a foundational starting point, let's grasp this, or maybe just agree to this. God's law matters. Then and still... And I suppose it'd be fair to say, and forever. Pastors, theologians, and many of you all know all too well that maybe the deepest and most ever-present doctrinal and practical issue in Scripture, and so too in the lives of God's covenant people, and really anybody made in His image, is the matter of the relationship and connection between law and grace are law and the gospel. They're both in scripture. They're both critically foundational and important. And how do they fit together? As I said before, some people these days I think are, are just fitting them together by just ignoring the law. Just have grace. That, that, that'll work, it just won't work in the fullness of scripture. And I suppose there once were, maybe there still are somewhere, people who grasp only law and have no, no room for the true gospel of grace. Just want to wear you out with things to do so that you can perform your way to God. I suppose there are those people. There's a whole lot more of these people these days. And I want to be this guy in the middle who proclaims the fullness of both. I think that's what Psalm 50 actually does. God's law and God's grace are often shortened to the expression, the law and the gospel. In this psalm, that's effectively, those matters are effectively set to song. Set to song. We remember songs, don't we? I'm amazed that when things get played from the 1970s, I remember the lyrics to these songs for which if you ask me a question, what is the lyric of such and such a song that was popular in the 70s or 80s? If you ask me that, I couldn't give you a lick of anything. 
if you start playing the melody, you know what happens? The words come to mind in their richness, in their blessing. So we will end this particular sermon talking about the significance of this as a song, but that was just by way of insertion. We'll consider Psalm 50 finally under four headings. Judicial summons, sacrificial review, divine rebuke, and priestly salvation. Summons, review, rebuke, salvation. First judicial summons. Look back at verses 1 through 6 of this psalm. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. The psalmist describes and declares that Yahweh, God the Lord, is a judge. But a judge of who, we may wonder. Surely a judge of other people. No. Verse 4 says that he may judge his people. Do not miss also that in verse 5, he summons to be gathered those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Notably, this would be rightly understood as those within the Mosaic covenant, a covenant which was inaugurated by sacrifice detailed in Exodus 24. So a quick review from Exodus 24. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The Mosaic covenant was inaugurated by sacrifice. Now back to our psalm. Note the ominous picture or image that surrounds Yahweh the judge in verse 3. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest, a very sobering judicial atmosphere. I've appeared before many courts in my former life. Hope to appear no more before any courts except maybe the Lord's. But in no courtroom was it as sobering as this courtroom. If a courtroom is a woodshed, I've been in some judicial woodsheds, but they didn't have a devouring fire and a mighty tempest roaring around them. I mean, this is serious judgment atmosphere. Oh, I could tell some stories. So could all the lawyers who have appeared before a very mean judge. Finally, note that as a judge in our psalm, he does not keep silence. 
That is, he will issue forth his judgment in and by his own words, and most significantly, his judgment will be perfectly righteous. That is, it will be perfectly true and perfectly holy. The psalmist has set the scene, a gathering of all the earth so that he may judge his covenant people in some sense. And note this, Yahweh here shines forth from Zion, not from Sinai, when he calls for their gathering. Psalm 50 is not then a recapitulation of the events of Sinai where the law was given, but a current, a then current assessment, and I suppose as we embrace this on ongoing, an ongoingly current assessment of Israel's participation in the covenant at that point and thereafter. Point two, sacrificial review. Let's look at verses 7 through 15 again. Hear, O people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now, these verses 7 through 15 make clear that something is wrong in connection with the sacrificial practices of God's covenant people. He says in verse 7, I will testify against you. And yet in verse 8, he makes clear that not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. So what is God's objection as to the sacrifices that they are offering? He does not rebuke them for offering sacrifices, but for a heartless worship in their bringing and presenting of those sacrifices with motivations and understandings contrary to God's design and purpose for sacrifices. So I'll explain this in a minute, but here's a quick quip. The sacrifices were designed and to be used as approaches by a sinful people to come before a holy God. The, the, the notion of an approach to God through sacrifice was important. So how, when, and what, I suppose, were the purposes of the offering of sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant in a more general way? If you've ever ventured into a deliberate and laborious study of the book of Leviticus, and God bless you if you have, you may have a solid grasp of the answer to this. But for most of us, we have a very limited grasp of the purpose and the meaning of those offerings. Maybe as limited as explaining them this way if we were asked, why the sacrifices? And the answer most of us could give or would give, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, is because God told his people to make them. Now truthfully, that's a, that's a pre-K or lower answer. We're better than that. We need to be better than that. We can be better than that. 
There's so much more that we need to grasp in this morning, so little time. So a hurried brief review and a selective highlighting. Professor Michael Morales helps us regarding sacrifices and purposes. He says, the goal for Israel is fellowship and communion with God because Yahweh God is holy, the source of life, the requirement for communion with God is utter and complete consecration. Yet before consecration can become, can become a possibility, Israel's sins must be dealt with, expiated. Only a cleansed humanity may belong to Yahweh. The way to God then is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. Sacrifice is the way Yahweh has opened for humanity to dwell in his presence. Worship through sacrifice was a journey into the presence of God, a rite of passage in the sense that the journey involved a process of transformation and consecration. Leviticus opens with divine legislation aimed at allowing Israel to draw near this approach through the sacrificial cultus. The first and foremost aspect of how sacrifice enables one to draw near to God is atonement for the whole sacrificial system serves to atone and finds meaning in the atoning function of sacrifice itself. Theologian Gordon Wenham explains further regarding the theology of Old Testament sacrifice. He says, the acceptance of every sacrifice depends on God's antecedent gracious purpose whereby he appointed the sacrificial system as a means of atonement for reconciliation between God and man. All the animal sacrifices have a common procedural core, that is, gestures that occur in every sacrifice, laying on of the hands, killing the animal, catching blood and using it, and burning at least part of the flesh on the altar. The animal is a substitute for the worshiper. Its death makes atonement for the worshiper. But in other respects, the sacrifices illustrated by three different sacrifices, burnt offering, sin offering, and peace offering, have some subsidiary, if you will, different symbolic meanings. The burnt offering expresses the idea of total consecration by the worshiper to God. The sin offering involves the idea of purification and its most distinctive feature is the use made of the sacrificial blood. The peace offering or thanksgiving offering was the most joyful offering. Only a few portions were burned on the altar. The rest was shared by the priest and the worshiper and the worshiper's family. And that last particular offering of thanksgiving actually may make us think, ah, let me think more about that one. Is that one, that, we, we intersect with something like that even today? Okay. Now with these broad and merely broad understandings of Old Testament sacrifice, let's look again at the critique that Yahweh is detailing, a critique that most commentators identify as condemning wrongly motivated sacrificial practice. A practice that, as respect to each type of sacrificial offering just noted, should not be made presuming that God needs these sacrifices. But rather, these sacrifices of approach and atonement are meant for us to enable us access to God and thereby honoring God. And they're not to be offered mechanically, merely dutifully, and without thankfulness to God. I suppose the way I would say it is, even in the times of, of, of the Old Testament, even in the midst of the ongoing and regular sacrifices, 
Even God's covenant people then had no better answer than our pre-K student today why these sacrifices, because God told us to have them. That is far short of truth, and it's dishonoring to God, and he was critiquing them for that. He expects more of, of them than that. He gives more of explanation to them than that, and so to us as well. Let's look again briefly at, at verses 14 and 15, which end this section. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So we see from this two things. First, sacrifice, rightly moted sacrifice, was directed, encouraged, and given importance by Yahweh here, Yahweh the judge. That surely cannot surprise us that sacrifice was the liturgical means by which humanity could dwell in his presence and the means to fellowship and communion with the holy God and the means to glorify him. Rightly motivated sacrifice was of central importance. And so I suppose that's the end of the psalm. It would be a very pleasant end. We learn a little bit of a critique, and then we come to verse 14 and 15, and we're off to joy. Committed, is, committed to thinking better and more deeply of sacrifice, encouraged ever so slightly, and we're, at, we're now at peace. What a, what a great place to end this psalm. What a great place for the covenantal woodshed to end. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. And, and at this point, in these verses and what follows, we see the, the combining and the intersection of two aspects of God's law. Both of primary, not secondary importance. The ceremonial law, which is really the, the, the term that we can imagine involves a sacrifice. But so too, notably, God's moral law. They intersect. The Old Testament ceremonial law was not of secondary importance to God. And so too we see that's also true regarding God's moral law, including that set forth in the Ten Commandments. You see in verses 14 and 15, we see the ceremonial law and the moral law in close proximity both with primary importance to God the judge. While with the coming of Christ, the ceremonial law was fulfilled and the Old Testament sacrifices ceased, as by Christ the matters of approach and atonement were fully and finally secured, the moral law of God continues. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, and I won't give the fullness of it, but a, 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 a brief quip. It says there, you don't have this above, verse 19 helpfully explains that, quote, the moral law does forever bind all justified persons as well as others. Ponder with me this. 
Who might be most prone to a mistaken and incorrect sacrificial practice, wrongly motivated? Who might those people be among God's covenant people? I wonder that. You can wonder whether they're with me. I happen to think, maybe, that those people that are prone to that wrong sacrifice are also the ones who are about to be rebuked as to matters of the moral law. I think they're the ones most prone to a wrongly motivated sacrificial practice. But whether that imagination of mine is is true, we do know what is true. It's certainly clear that God the judge's rebuke moves now from sacrifice in the ceremonial law into the moral law. That's clear. Verses 16 through 22 set forth a stinging rebuke of particular conduct by some who, quote, recite my statutes or take my covenant on their lips. So point three, divine rebuke. The psalm doesn't end. The psalm intensifies and gets into matters of the moral law. Verse 16, but to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? You hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. These are searing indictments, searing rebukes. They are on the most fundamental aspects in some ways, not all of them, but of God's moral law. Listen to these. They hate discipline. And as you listen, imagine, are these penetrating in any way to your own sensibilities of your own lives? They seem to penetrate mine, I will concede. They hate discipline. They cast God's word behind them, which I imagine is an an expression to describe that they are indifferent and dismissive of God's word. God's moral word, and all of God's word, frankly. They approve thievery. Now you're thinking, oh, that's the one. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty clear on that one, Pastor. Well, maybe not. If we're imagining here approval in part by failure to object, seek justice, cooperate with those who don't seek justice or an actual partnership with thievery. Now, let me just say, at this point, in the olden days, 
when everybody knew what the woodshed was, the pastor preaching this would have rushed his way to this section right here and would have camped, would have worn people out. And frankly, I can understand why. Because he thought it was paramount. But you know, I'm not doing that to you. I'm not doing that to you or doing it to myself. But I can't avoid, we can't avoid the significance of it. They are full of evil and deceitful speaking, including even against their own brother. You say, well, I don't have any brothers. Just sisters. Or you might say, well, my brother, I just love the heck out of my brother and never say anything bad against my brother. Well, expand your gaze of who constitutes your brother. You know that. The substance and meaning of this is comprehensive. I would say all who are covenant people, the weak ones, the best ones, the worst ones, are your brothers and sisters. Do we speak evil against them? Now, that should grab you. And you don't even have to hang with adulterers for that one to get you. Does not this listing, or at least some portion of it, prompt a silent elbowing of yourself by your conscience? A spiritual elbowing may be the work of the Holy Spirit. I think it's doing. I think there's lots of flying elbows silently as we go through this listing. I think there are, even in this group, even among God's covenant people. That's who was behind the woodshed. Does not this listing implicate each of us at, at some point, episodically, if not chronically? And if so, what then? Surely, our confession of personal sin weekly, and don't wait till every Sunday to confess, is paramount. And yet, and yet I think there are some who, even after hearing Richard declare words of assurance and pardon and comfort, and even after citing those words, will say, yeah, but I'm not so sure. Am I destined to be yet torn apart by this judge and without a deliverer? I honestly think there are many of us who from time to time simply depart from gospel truth into our own sense of common equity. He can't forgive that. And he knows the depths of it. And to make matters worse, I suppose, or more serious, you know, last week, Juan Carlos is talking all about this. He's telling you you're going to die. He's telling you you're going to die, and he tells you you're going to die because that's exactly what Psalm, you were preaching 49, weren't you, Juan Carlos? That's what he said. It was a beautiful sermon. He delivered a serious word. How about me piling on with this one? You're going to die, and you're going to be judged. We do know, of course, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 leaves no wiggle room on this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat 
of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So you see now I'm setting up a sermon series that will not happen as to the judgment. Be that as it may. Point four. Our last point, priestly salvation. And it's at this point, after me having highlighted 2 Corinthians 5, and, and, and after hearing these rebukes, and emphasizing the primary importance of the moral law, that we really need to hold tightly to the fullness of God's word. We must not stumble here by imagining that God's ultimate word to us, his covenant people, is rebuke, coming judgment, and threatened destruction without a deliverer. Moreover, we must not imagine that it is by reason of our own offerings to God, in the nature of maybe obedience, even those offerings that are made with thanksgiving, that a final and eternal judgment of rebuke is avoided. The psalmist does not end with the gripping warning in verse 22, and neither does the rest of Scripture. Yes, verse 22 when it says, Mark then this, you who forget God, that's a vowed and active word, a genuine warning, a word not to be forgotten or dismissed. It is those who are not the Lord's who have this destiny. The last word for God's covenant people in this psalm is itself a word of salvation, a word that we know from within the rest of Scripture concerns, interestingly enough, a priestly sacrifice, a priestly sacrificial offering, an offering made by God Himself, God who took on our flesh. As I said in the first service, this is the sentence you must not miss. The glorious reality for God's covenant people is that our judge is also our great high priest. The great high priest whose perfect life and atoning sacrifice is the very salvation mentioned as Psalm 50 ends. Let's move quickly to, to Hebrews 5. You know, as I said before, hooray for you that, that, that to go to Leviticus and grasp all of it. But if you go there, jump straightway to Hebrews. Or even my recommendation is hang around Hebrews before you get to Leviticus. But be that as it may, look at Hebrews 5 verses, Hebrews 10 verses 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is of course Christ speaking, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. In verse 10, Ah, oh, such sweetness. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the very salvation 
which he promised to show his covenant people in the last verse of this psalm. So finally we reach verse 23, the end of the psalm, which resumes and concludes God's word to those he summoned. Here's what it says. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And I think here it's actually a beautiful place to note where his law and his grace are expressed in unmistakable balance. For here, behind the covenantal woodshed, we have a summoning of thanksgiving from his covenant people. A summoning to a rightly ordered life, a life ordered necessarily around and in accordance with God's moral law. And finally, the promise of a gracious salvation, a revelation of the gracious deliverance from judgment into the fullness of eternal life. The gospel itself is the good news of that salvation. Because I made much of God's law and because Psalm 50 makes much of God's law today, it seems to me that reading briefly, and you won't have it above, but just listen to this, 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 this from Psalm 19 concerning God's law. It makes sense given what we've just read about his summoning us to thanksgiving in a rightly ordered life. Elsewhere in God's word it says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Oh, there is great reward in keeping God's law. A rightly ordered life in view of God's moral law is a mighty reward for which behind the woodshed that's made clear but I would say even the fuller reward the fuller reward is that of grace the grace of deliverance that's expressed in the gospel now to close let me take us back to my original image of a woodshed of being behind a woodshed and ask the question, it's really a serious one, almost done. What do we learn when we are taken behind the covenantal woodshed by God? What do we learn? What have we learned? And to help you remember this, and to help me remember this, I think of it in this way. We actually learn behind the covenantal woodshed, we learn a song and its meaning as regards law and grace. We learn the lyrics and meaning of Psalm 50, and so too the melody of thankfulness 
with which it rightly and joyfully must be sung and lived all to God's glory. May we sing so and live so as dismissed from behind the covenantal woodshed to the fullness of a glorious life and the promise of an inheritance secure for us. Let's pray. Almighty Father, uh, I pray that our hearts and minds would be stirred by your word because your Holy Spirit has, has used some portion of, of that which has been preached and read for that purpose. I do pray in the way of thankfulness that you have given us a song to sing, a song that is actually the way we remember the mighty truth of the primary importance of both the law and of grace and of the actual highlighting and final word to you, to your covenant people. Your final word is of salvation, a word secured by you, the judge who is our great high priest. In Christ's name we pray, amen.